So we've been working our way through the letter to the Romans. Um, we're up to Romans chapter 10. So you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. It's a letter which gives a systematic presentation of the gospel, um, God's unfolding plan of redemption. And it's written to the church in Rome not only to ground them in the gospel that they could understand the gospel, but to really motivate them to be part of Paul's gospel mission, to take the gospel out to the regions belong he, uh, beyond. He wants Rome, and you see that in chapter 15, uh, to partner with him, this church, to partner with him in, in enabling the gospel to go to those who've never heard. And so it's helpful for us to think about that, that as we encounter this gospel so clearly explained, it's not supposed to just inform our minds and make us go, oh, that's amazing. It's supposed to produce in us a personal response to Jesus Christ, a response that makes us love him and love the people that he loves. A response that would make us want to move out in proclaiming this gospel to those who don't know and haven't heard and haven't yet bowed the knee. That's what it's supposed to produce in us. And it's not, we're not studying it rightly if it's not producing that response. And so I just want to stop at this point and give us all a chance to, to pray and ask God as we open his word to do that work in our heart, to send his spirit and convict us of this gospel and move us out in missions and evangelism um, with this gospel. So let's ask God to do that. Father, thank you for each one of your people that are gathered here this morning. My prayer is for those who don't know you, who have come this morning. Maybe they've been coming for weeks and months and years, but they don't truly know you that you would open up their eyes and soften their hearts to lay hold of Jesus Christ. And for those who, of us who have known you, Father, forgive us for getting distracted by so many things. Forgive us for not loving Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. Forgive us for growing lukewarm in our passion for the gospel and to see your name proclaimed amongst all peoples. Forgive us for that as individuals. Forgive me for that, taking my eye off what really matters. And forgive us as a church, Lord, for when we have lacked evangelistic zeal and a burden for the lost. And as we ask forgiveness, Lord, we thank you that we can open up your word this morning, which is living and active and pierces to dividing soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and we can be changed. And so, Father, we ask in that you would send your spirit with power, and by your word, you would make us new, and you would renew our minds and our hearts, Lord, that we would stop, and we would turn to Jesus Christ. And we would become his ambassadors and start living differently and thinking differently and feeling differently. Father, please focus your people this morning on Jesus Christ and this glorious message that we have in him. In his name and for his glory we ask it. Amen. So Romans chapter 10. Uh, in Romans chapter 9 to 11, Paul is addressing one of the major objections uh, to the gospel that he undoubtedly had heard many times as he went around proclaiming the gospel. And that is really what has happened to Israel. 
If, if Jesus is God's Messiah, if he's the Messiah given to the Jews and from the Jews, then why is it that so many Jews have not received him? Has God's plans and purposes for Israel failed? Has the power of the gospel proved powerless in their case? And Paul begins to answer this. And in his first part of his answer is found in Romans chapter 9. And his answer emphasizes God's sovereignty. And he really explains that God's plans and God's purposes and God's promises haven't been thwarted because they're never dependent on people. God has ordained everything that happened and, and happens and it's not contingent on man's will or man's desire. That's the first part of his answer. The second part of his answer is found in Romans chapter 10 and it emphasizes man's responsibility. The problem doesn't lie with God. The problem lies with man and particularly with Israel who has stubbornly rejected the gospel. The third part of his answer is found in Romans chapter 11 where he returns back to God's sovereignty and says even in the current rejection, the large-scale rejection that Israel are having towards the gospel, God has a plan and a purpose and his purposes are being worked out. And so he brings us full scale. The part we're looking at this morning is Romans chapter 10, which emphasizes human responsibility. God works out his plans and his purposes through the human will and the human uh, responsibilities that he's commanded us to do. God is sovereign, yes. And none of his plans and purposes can be thwarted. But people are responsible for their reaction to the gospel. God has chosen who will believe and respond to the gospel and be saved before the foundation of the world. Yes, that's Romans 9. But we are still responsible to preach the gospel and people are still responsible to believe it. And Paul doesn't explain how these two realities exactly fit together, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He just presents both with equal clarity. Pray. Pray so earnestly and zealously, we saw at the start of Romans chapter 10, that people will be saved because it requires a supernatural work of God to save anyone. Without the intervention of God, no one will be saved. So pray as if only God can save because that is true. And yet preach and evangelize and convince and persuade and beseech people as if it was completely dependent on you. Because... Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, and that is also true. So that is our text this morning. I've entitled this message, The Beauty and Burden of Missions. Three essential means that God uses to save people. Three essential means that God uses to save people. Let's read Romans chapter 10. We'll pick up from verse 10 and then read through to the end of the chapter. Romans 10 verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask of me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So if one means that God uses to save people, the messenger, verses 14 and 15. Secondly, the message, verses 16 and 17. And then thirdly, the international mission, verses 18 to 21. So we'll take each in turn. Firstly, the messenger, verses 14 and 15. He's just been explaining in the preceding verses that everyone, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he raises the question, how are they going to call upon one in whom they've not believed? How are they going to believe if they've never heard? How are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? How are they going to preach unless someone is sent? And he presents this sort of unbreakable chain that exists, uh, that must be carried out, that we're responsible to do in order that people could hear and believe and be saved. And, of course, he's presented another unbreakable chain just a chapter earlier in chapter 8. Uh, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. The unbreakable chain of God's sovereignty began in eternity past. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And now he's taking one link out of that chain. Those whom he called. And he's expanding that link to say... How does God call people to himself? Those whom he's foreknown and chosen, those whom he's predestined for glory. How does he call them to himself? And he expands this into a bunch of uh, links that relate to our responsibility. God doesn't save people in a vacuum. He saves people through means. God has ordained not only that people are saved, but he's ordained how they're saved through the preaching of the gospel. So yeah, in Romans 10, there's another kind of chain. Because God has called people to himself and all nations to himself through hearing and believing the gospel, we have a responsibility then then to send out gospel messengers into all nations that all might hear and believe. This is the essential means, the cause and effect relationship by which God has ordained how he will call the elect to himself describes the links of human responsibility that fit within and make up the chain of divine sovereignty. This is how God is going to call people. And the emphasis is on the messenger. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. God has ordained and purposed that the gospel would be brought to his elect, his people, through messengers who bear the good news to them. That's how God 
undertook the mission himself, God the Son, didn't he? He took on human flesh. The Word of God became flesh, as John 1 tells us, and dwelt among us. And He came bringing in Himself, in His person, grace and truth in fullest measure. And that's why when God has now ordained that the message about what He's accomplished should be made known, it should be made known through personal messengers who are sent out to deliver the message in person. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. In verse 15, he's quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 7. It's a passage which speaks of God's great deliverance. And it, it pictures the messenger who brings the message about God's deliverance. As if the king has gone out and, and won a great victory on behalf of his people. And then he sends news back to his people about the, the victory that's been won. And the people are waiting anxiously to hear how has the king fared. And they, they, they see the runner coming along the mountains toward them and they see his bearing good news of the king's victory. That's the picture here. The people wait anticipation in anticipation and rejoice when at last they see the messenger bringing good news. So the idea here is that God has sent out authoritative messengers. He sent out those who represent him with the message of his victory. That's the idea. Ultimately, it's Christ who sends out the messengers because he's the king and it's his victory that we are telling people about. God has ordained that the gospel message be preached here, there, and everywhere. That was his plan all along, that it would be delivered through you and me in person. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are his ambassadors. Ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has placed you in the midst of certain family members, friends, work colleagues, sports teammates. He's put you in a particular place at a particular time, and you will rub shoulders with particular people so that you could deliver in person the only message that could ever save them. That's what God has ordained for you to do, to be his ambassadors. This message isn't going to be received by all. You can see there in verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Notice there what it says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. The gospel is an authoritative message. It's not just nice information. It's not just a, a message about something I interesting that happened in history. It's the king of the universe making an appeal, an authoritative appeal through you. He sent you out as his messengers and you represent him and people are called to believe, to obey, to respond wholeheartedly to this message. It's an authoritative message delivered by us. Will you submit to the Lord? And follow him or not. 
you're not done presenting the gospel until you've made an appeal. Will you repent and believe? That's the hardest part sometimes, isn't it? We can all talk about different facts and different opinions and we can throw different ideas around and say we've presented the gospel. You're not done until you say to them, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What is your response going to be? That's the appeal. God is making an appeal through us. In verse 16, he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. You know, Isaiah 53 is that famous passage that that prefigured the crucifixion of Jesus. The suffering servant crucified, shed his blood for many, right? That they really didn't expect. He's quoting from this passage because people are going to struggle to believe in the Jesus that God has sent. People are going to struggle to believe in this suffering Messiah, this weak Messiah, this Messiah who came to deal with a much bigger problem than politics and sickness. He came to deal with the greatest problem of all, which is sin, and conquer sin and death. People are going to struggle with that. They're not going to believe in that kind of Messiah. Christ was not bringing good news of political deliverance that they wanted. He was not going to bring the healing to their land that they wanted. He wasn't coming in the kinds of powers and signs and wonders that they were expecting. You see, people want a deliverer, but they want a deliverer of a different kind. And that's what Paul's alluding to by quoting this. You understand that not everyone's going to obey this gospel. And he quotes from Isaiah 53. Even today, many people want to be saved, but not from their sin. They want a deliverer who would deliver them from their problems and from their burdens and from their anxieties and make their life richer and better. They want that kind of deliverer. But that's not the deliverer we're presenting. We're presenting Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for sin. Weak and crucified on a cross, but raised as the conqueror of sin and death. That's the deliverer we are presenting. The message preached by many churches and Christians is not the gospel. And the faith that they're calling people to believe doesn't save. There wouldn't be so many people calling themselves Christians who know nothing of Jesus Christ and who live contrary to him if we were preaching this gospel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Second, the message. The message. Then in verse 17 he says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If we, believe, if we preach this message, you're a sinner and you need to be saved from your sin and there's no other way of salvation and your main problem is sin. That message is not going to be well received. That message the world doesn't want to hear. But that's the message we're called to preach. So how will anyone respond to that message? How will they believe that kind of message that puts man down and makes man nothing and desperate and weak and doesn't offer to solve any of their problems? Well, God has packaged in this message His power unto salvation. It's the message itself that will produce the faith. That's the key verse in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? Romans chapter 1, 16. What? 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it. It, the gospel, the message, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in it, in what? In the gospel message is the righteousness of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. How is it that people will believe? It's if we, if they hear this message about Jesus Christ, the message about Christ. Where does faith come from? It's by hearing the message about Christ. And so Jesus ordained an authoritative message to be carried by authoritative messengers and delivered intact, a simple message which bears the power of God unto salvation, which has the power to deliver people from death to life, from darkness to light, from sin to their Savior. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, listen to his language, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are saved, if you hold fast the the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, you hear that? I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received. He's just passing on an authoritative message about Jesus Christ, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the Gospel message. Jesus died for our sin. Jesus buried. Jesus raised to life in victory. He didn't make this message up. He wasn't at liberty to change it or tweak it or alter it to make it more acceptable to people. He saw himself as just delivering it faithfully. He has the message. Take it or leave it. Like it or hate it. And that's why he could say in Galatians 1, I'm amazed, verse 6, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. There is only one message that has the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel, pure and unadulterated, delivered faithfully by gospel messengers, whatever the response is going to be. That's your and my role. The gospel is like a key that unlocks eternity. But it has to be this key and this key alone that God has given us. We can't tweak a few edges here, you know, grind off a little edge here, take about this this hard notch over here, take it out. What happens when when you do that to a key? It looks quite similar, doesn't it? It's a key, it's got a similar shape. You put it in the door and it doesn't work. It doesn't open men's hearts to Jesus Christ and save them. And so we need to be careful that we deliver this gospel message faithfully as God delivered it to us. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he said, because this is the power of God. Witnessing is primarily about sharing the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done, the good news. Jesus died, Jesus buried, died for us and buried and raised. That's it. Don't be tempted to change that. Don't be tempted to preach a gospel, Jesus died for your healing, 
Jesus died for your financial liberation. Jesus died for something else. Don't be tempted to, to preach another gospel. Jesus is not the Lord of the universe and the only Lord. And he calls on people everywhere to repent and believe. Just, you know, just give your heart to Jesus. doesn't matter if nothing changes. Don't be tempted to preach other messages. Don't be tempted to get distracted into discussions about how Noah fitted so many animals on the ark when we mainly call to speak about who Jesus Christ is and why he was crucified on the cross. Stick to the gospel and don't get distracted for all these other things. I mean, it's fine to have these conversations, but they've got to always come back to these simple gospel messages which are not hard to understand. They must just be believed. That's our job. This is the essential means by which God calls people to himself. Keep bringing them back. Look, I can't answer that question. But what I'm putting before you is Jesus Christ crucified. What are you going to do with him? Thirdly, the international mission. Verse 18, he says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. So he asks the question, but listen, in, in regard to Israel specifically, haven't they heard the gospel? And his answer is yes, they have heard the gospel. And then he quotes there um, in the second part of verse 18, their voice has gone out in all the earth. He quotes from Psalm 19.4. And he takes that psalm which talks about God's glory being like a message that is proclaimed in all of creation and no one can escape the message of creation about the power of God. And he applies that to the gospel as, as regards to Israel and says, you know what, the gospel has gone out so far and wide that that is as clear, ringing out as clear as creation, what Jesus Christ has done. So if they've heard, did they not understand? It's, it's the problem that it wasn't explained very well to them. You know, maybe some of you sometimes think, you know, when people like reject the Gospels because you need more training in apologetics and you couldn't answer all their questions. Is, is the problem intellectual? It wasn't explained clear, clearly enough. And he says, no, again, he uses Scripture to support his answer there. In verse 19, I asked, did Israel not understand? And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, from Moses, before Israel have even entered the promised land. And God says, you know what? I delivered you out of Egypt. I've revealed myself to you. But you're not going to believe in me and follow me. He tells them up front. And in Deuteronomy 32, 21, he says, They have made me jealous with what is not God. They've provoked me to anger with their idols. And so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. It says, they have gone after other gods and made me jealous with their idolatry. Well, I'm going to make them jealous by going after other nations with my grace and mercy. That's basically what he says. Up front, he's, going to, he's talking about the way he's going to show Israel their sin and rebellion for failing to believe in him. And then he quotes in verse 20, Isaiah 65, very much the same uh, flavor. Isaiah 65, 1. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek to me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. And that's because Israel was so rebellious and didn't believe in the Lord and follow him. 
there's two major points to get out of this quoting of these Old Testament texts. The one is this. If the Gentiles, who are not God's chosen people, could hear the gospel and believe it, Israel have no excuse. That's the first point. Israel can't turn around and say, oh, but we didn't understand. It wasn't presented clear enough. Secondly, Israel have been unfaithful to God from the beginning. It's not a new thing for them to reject His love and His truth. They've been doing that from the very beginning. God predicted from the very beginning. He can quote from these Old Testament passages to say, this has always been Israel's response to God. It's not that Israel haven't heard. It's not that they can't understand. It's that they won't understand. They refuse to submit, to obey, to believe in God's way of righteousness. That's what he's been unfolding in the earlier part of the chapter. This is not an issue of knowledge or intellectual understanding. This is a moral issue. This is an issue of hardness of heart. This is so important that you get this. Because this principle is true of Israel. It's true of every unbeliever. Our problem when people reject the gospel is not intellectual. It's moral and spiritual. People are not going to be converted to the gospel by better conversations, better argumentation, and more information, more evidence. That alone is not going to convince them. People have a moral problem. They love their sin more than Jesus Christ. That's their problem. They love their idols more than the true God. That has always been the problem. Notice there in verse 21. All day long I've held my hands out to a what? A disobedient and contrary people. And the emphasis there is on willful rejection of which they liable for. And yeah, we're back to where we began in Romans chapter 1, right? Though people know God, though people know the truth, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's because of the, the, the love that we have for sin that we don't want to hear the truth and turn to it. We don't want to turn away from our sin. We don't want to respond to the call of Jesus Christ because we love our sin and our idols. That's Romans chapter 1. What is going to bring about repentance and faith? Well, one, these messengers. If people would turn to the Lord, what is going to bring that about? These messengers who personally deliver the message about Jesus Christ. Secondly, the message itself. The message has the power of God for salvation. This is what will produce the faith and convince them. And then thirdly, this international mission that is explaining there in 8 to 20. In the case of Israel, the first two are not enough. The first two aren't going to produce repentance. There's a third that he begins to deal with. And that is God is going to make them jealous by taking his grace and mercy to the other nations. And that is the third means that God is going to use to make his people see their sin and rebellion. Israel is going to look and see the, the other nations receiving grace and mercy and blessing. They're going to see the other nations knowing this God that they've rejected. They're going to see how they ought to have responded. And they're going to be jealous. Paul doesn't see the international mission, the taking of the gospel to the Gentiles as God's rejection of Israel. But as God's ordained means for actually bringing this hard-hearted people to him. 
Look at there, chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. He doesn't see this as now God's leaving his people behind, but God is sending this gospel to the Gentile nations so that they could see their sin more clearly. And he picks up again in verse 11. I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, their tres- through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And he'll really expand on this through chapter 11. I don't want you to get distracted with that yet and lose the main point in chapter 10. The main point in chapter 10 is that not all people are going to respond to the gospel. God knows that up front, but it should be proclaimed anyway. It glorifies God to proclaim the gospel even to people that he knows will willfully and rebelliously reject it. It's important we understand that. This mission is not only about saving people. And that's why he ends there in verse 21. Look at this. Just, just picture this picture. Israel, from the very beginning, rejecting all of God. I mean, they're not even into the promised land and they're already making idols. And he ends this chapter quoting, All day long I've held my hands out in loving entreaty, gracious, merciful entreaty to this very people that are so stubborn and rebellious. Because that is God's nature. That is God's nature to do that. And so the mission must be undertaken. As one writer expresses it, it's a picture of the everlasting arms spread open in unwearied love. Do you get the picture? God's like, I know you, you're going to hate this message and you're going to reject the messenger, but I'm sending my son anyway. And even while you are crucifying him to try and get rid of him, he'll be praying for your salvation and my mercy upon him. This is the burden and beauty of missions. You think about this. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. The resurrected king of the universe arises to the place of all authority in heaven and on earth. He has all power and all authority to do whatever he so wishes. He's the king of the universe. And he issues marching orders to his foot soldiers. And his marching orders are not, go and squash my enemies and defeat them. And show them who I really am. And make them submit. He doesn't send his messengers out with a message of judgment. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's amazing. The king's mission, after all that we have done, is go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. That's the king we serve. Accept him or reject him. He is extending his grace out to all nations, to disobedient and contrary people. That's the main point we must get. And when he has the power to do anything he wants, and he gives us that power, the power that raised him from the dead, He doesn't give us the power to annihilate all his enemies. 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What does he use and what does he give us his power for? To be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Many will hear and not believe. Many will stubbornly reject the gospel, but we must preach it anyway. Because God is holding out the arms of his love and grace through us. How many of you believed the gospel the first time you heard it? How many of you believed the second time or the third time or the fifth time? These glorious truths of the gospel are not only supposed to fill our heads with knowledge, but to fill our hearts with passion for Jesus Christ and passion for the lost. Paul could say, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they could be saved. He could say in Romans chapter 9, I wish that I were cut off and accursed for the sake of my people. This is what he's trying to convey as he understands God's heart for the nations. This is why he wrote the letter. This is where the letter's going. He's going to make an appeal that Rome, the church at Rome, partner with him to see this gospel taken out to every language and tribe and people and nation. What are you doing with the people around you? What are you doing with the gospel that you've been entrusted with? What are you doing with it? What is distracting you from taking this simple message which we have seen is everyone's only hope of being saved? What are you doing with it? There is nothing more important than for us to be the bearers of this message and God has put you in a sphere where you're the one who has to speak it. No one else will if you don't. And it's not just about evangelism, it's about missions. What are we doing? What are we doing? 40% of the world's people groups are unreached. That means the people that are growing up in those people groups will never hear somebody bringing to them the good news of the gospel even once in their whole lifetime. That's a reality. It is a reality that Christians spend more on dog food than on foreign missions. We spend more on buying decorations for Halloween for our pets, in America anyway, than we do on foreign missions. What is Midrand Chapel doing? Where's all our time and our money going? Is this the burden of our church and the burden of your hearts? I like the way that Oswald Smith said it. The Lord didn't tell us to build beautiful churches, but to evangelize the world. Just this week, I was talking with some of our members about these lights and the ceiling that looks like a factory to me. And they dangle on change, and I think, surely we could do better than this. You know, decorating the church and making it a place where God is honored. And it does bother me, I'll be honest with you. But what bothers me more is if we had a wonderful looking ceiling with, you know, 500,000 rands worth of lighting and no missionaries that we're sending out. That bothers me much worse. I find it difficult to believe that in a congregation this size, God is not calling any of you to take the gospel to those who've never heard. 
those unreached people groups are living in countries. They're situated in countries where it is illegal to preach the gospel and where Christians are persecuted. And some of you will have to suffer to take the gospel there. And some of you may even have to die. But Jesus is worthy. Are we a church that's willing to pay that price? Are we a church that's, that's going to put our programs and our decorations and our conferences second to the mission of Jesus Christ? The gospel of the glory of Jesus among the nations. If God is knocking on the door of your hearts or your children's hearts and convicting them that they should give up their careers and their fancy education and their nice cars and live in difficulty in one of these countries for the sake of the gospel, will you release your children with joy? And will we send them with support? And what are you going to do this week? What are you going to do this week with the people around you who need to hear this message?